0: Is X for The Point magazine. I'm your regular host, Justin E. H. Smith. You know the routine by now. On each episode, we have a guest, and with that with the guest, I explore a question of the form, What is X? Where X is filled in by some particularly abstruse or difficult or hard-to-handle concept, often which philosophers have been thinking about for thousands of years. So today is really the ultimate grand finale of this season of What is X? Because we're talking about the absolute most abstruse concept possible, namely being. What is being? And I have on that rare sort of guest who was willing to take this question on and has dedicated much of his active research life to it, Chris McDaniel. He's a professor of philosophy at Notre Dame, and he is the author of the 2017 OUP book, The Fragmentation of Being, which we'll spend some time talking about today. And he's also a member of a legendary band, at least in certain circles, called the 21st Century Monads, which I hear has recently released a new album. And I'm delighted about that after a nine-year hiatus. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, so it's hard to know where to get started with such a huge concept. Maybe the best way to do it is to ask you how you got started, or m- maybe to put it a bit more kind of, uh, 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 defiantly, how on earth did you come to think that you could tackle such a massive Mountain as being. (laughs) Most people, I think, and maybe you'll correct me or we can flesh this out, flesh this perception out more fully. Most people would think that that's a question that can't even be asked. It's too abstruse. There are too many uh, senses of the term. And it's so universal that it just covers everything and therefore. There's not much to say about it. So how did you come around to this?
1: Yeah, so interestingly, maybe um, I came around it by thinking about uh, the kind of philosopher who thinks the question is actually not particularly obtrusive, but rather too simple oh. uh, to be worth spending a lot of time on. So yeah. there is a still very popular view among a lot of people doing metaphysics these days that talk about being or existence are just dispensable. Um, Right. We can say everything we want to say about being or existence just by using the word something. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, you know, cats have being, which sounds, you know, does sound very deep and like you should use capital letters uh, Mm -hmm. or deeper tone of voice. We can just say there are cats or something is a cat. Right. Um, And so this is a view in which what is being, being is just something expressible by quantification. Right, right. Word like something or
0: a phrase like there is, and that's that's, that's close to Quine's um, to be is to be the value of a bound variable, right? Right, um, uh, right. That's the... I, I actually talked about that just on my previous episode I recorded about numbers. It's funny to come back to that, but anyhow, do go on. Right.
1: So um, this is a very popular view, and one thing that's nice about the view is that it does that giant mountain that seems so hard to tackle uh, Mm -hmm. turns out to not even be a molehill. I don't know what the right analogy is, but it's, it's pretty tiny. Um, The notion is thin. uh, And if you understand a phrase like everything Mm -hmm. and not, then you know, all you need to know about being because to be is just to not be something that everything is not. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: But if it's so simple, then it's also hard to devote your career to it isn't it or maybe it's hard to demonstrate that simplicity uh, does that take some significant work
1: yes and so it's this is a view that i i up projecting um mm-hmm. so i don't think i don't think being is that simple but okay. um let's hear we're, more we're asking about the sort of history of how i came to oh right like, yeah. thinking about this it was initially via thinking about this view that there's just not much to be said about it mm-hmm. um and that view is in, like, uh, serious contrast with large portions of the history of philosophy, I think, both mm-hmm. in the Western tradition and in certain non-Western traditions. Yeah. And so I wanted to figure out, you know, what, what points of contact there were between uh, people currently working on questions in metaphysics and people long dead or recently dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, weirdly enough, my entry point was thinking about Heidegger. Right.
0: Uh, yeah. Mm hmm. So Heidegger is uh, is famous for... Or he maybe he says it with a very deep voice, doesn't he? Yes, right. Or like in a ger-
1: Germanic he, accent. <laughs> yeah,
0: and he becomes very, very somber and kind of uh, 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 profound in tone when he says the word being or at least that's how i imagine it so he's like the ultimate opposite of what you've just said which is the kind of simplifying molehill view that it's uh just everything what's the big deal right
1: um right exactly so um on the on the view of Heidegger that i i find attractive um I see Heidegger is coming from this Aristotelian tradition where mm-hmm. instead of thinking that the being is just this simple notion about what there's not much to be said about, instead it's this very complicated notion that's said in many ways to use the kind of mm-hmm. uh, Aristotelian phrase, so there's different ways to be
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they're connected in some way. And part of the job of metaphysics or ontology is to figure out the ways in which they are connected. So mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on the reading of Heidegger, I like, um, Heidegger thinks of Aristotle as a very substance centric philosopher. So the the, the central mode of being is the way in which a substance is and the other ways to exist are to be understood in terms of how they're related to substances. So Mm -hmm. it's easiest to see in the case of an accident or a property that something has. So Mm -hmm. there's the thing and then there's its redness. So maybe Mm -hmm. it's think about like a beach ball that's red, Mm -hmm. um, the redness uh, doesn't exist or have being in the same way that the substance does. The substance may be existable stop, but the redness inheres in or exists in the, the substance, the ball. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a different mode of being, but there's also in articulating that difference. We see that a way in which those ways are related to one another. One is right. a way of existing in. So I think that's the kind of inspiration for the Heideggerian reading. But what's novel about, you know, at least one of the things that's novel about the Heideggerian ontology is the, what becomes the replacement for substance. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the reading of Heidegger, I like there's a mode of being that, uh, broadly speaking, people have, mm-hmm. uh, do, Dasein, to use right. the often untranslated German German technical term in Heidegger. Um, right. So it's the kind of kind of thing you and I are. And we have a distinctive mode of being. We don't exist in the same way that a pencil exists or a rock exists. And in fact, it turns out that a rock and a pencil don't exist in the same way as each other either. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the pencil has a kind of mode of being. Presence of hand is an often the way it's translated in English, whereas the, the rock has a different mode of being, ready to hand. Uh, so these two things exist in different ways. Further mode of beings can be articulated when we think about plants or mm-hmm. language or maybe abstract objects like numbers and mm-hmm. We got to figure out how these all hang together and we're looking for some sort of clue to see how they hang together Mm -hmm. and maybe that clue is we're going to start with our own mode of being uh since it's what's most familiar to us in some sense and then understand those other modes in terms of it right so that's that's why i see that kind of heideggerian project it's it is a kind of diametric opposite of this simpler uh view that's so common um Mm But even the simpler view had kind of pressures it was facing independently of looking at the history of philosophy. So mm-hmm. it's um, struggles to make sense of t- talk of things like Santa Claus doesn't exist, right? Right. Spider Man also doesn't exist. So it looks like right. there are two
0: things that don't exist. Right. 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 Um, but this again, is just- yeah. I mean, this is where we get the discussion, which I, as I recall, is in your book of of Meinong and subsistence, right? The the, the contrast between subsistence and existence.
1: Yeah. So uh, although for my I think the contrast between those two is, that's also a contrast between modes of being and the Spider-Man doesn't have either one of those modes. So right, Spider-Man right. neither exists nor exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spider-Man is an object. Um the things that subsist would be things like propositions or facts. Right, um, right, right, right. The of fact course. that we are having this conversation—that uh, thing subsists. What Meinong mm-hmm. would call it a, an objective—that mm-hmm. um, subsists. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then there are these things that don't have any kind of being at all. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a making sense of Meinong is, I think, in itself a tricky project. And
0: yeah, we can bracket him for now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm. I, I want to dwell a bit longer on the Aristotle to Heidegger. Uh, development. Um, I could be wrong about Heidegger, but he certainly values Aristotle enough to spend a lot of time engaging with him. There's no question about that, but it seems to me that he's also rather disparaging in the end of Aristotle's project in the for the for the reason that he sees Aristotle as, as he puts it, uh forgetting about being and replacing it with beings plural uh small B right the idea being that, um, as you put it it's a substance-centered metaphysics which means that when you ask Aristotle what's what's being Aristotle says and, this is a more or less direct quote, oh, you know, horses and men, right? Things like that. Uh, whereas Heidegger, first of all, as you as you point out, doesn't want horses and men grouped together. But Heidegger also doesn't seem to want to have to worry about uh the individual corporeal substances, especially the horses and other other things that are poor in world, as he puts it. Uh that populate the world he wants to talk about the big guy with the capital b right um and so uh the way you've described him he's actually kind of more uh comfortable with aristotle or he sees himself as developing on aristotle um to put put it more carefully i i want to distinguish
1: the kind of structure that his theory has Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, and the the kind of content that gets put in that structure so Mm -hmm. The content of both Aristotle and Heidegger's structure is, I think, very different, but I think the structure is very similar. So mm-hmm. they both seem to think there's a central mode of being, mm-hmm. and then there are other modes of being that are to be understood in terms of how they relate to that central mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it is, I think, surprising given how much Heidegger disagrees with Aristotle about the content. like is, mm-hmm. What are the modes of being? What are the things that have them? How are they related to one another? Uh, what's the central one? What are the periphery ones? Uh, you know, Aristotle says substance, and then categorical being, and how those relate to substance in various ways. So I think it is interesting, and maybe um, you know, maybe one could even make the kind of uh, make a make an objection to the kind of view I like by saying mm-hmm. it's surprising that given how much Heidegger disagrees with the content of Aristotle's metaphysics. That he seems to obtain maintain the structure mm-hmm. uh, of Aristotle's metaphysics, and that's mm-hmm. that's on the interpretation yeah. that I am having. The structure yeah. is what's kept. Um, yeah, we still look for a central mode, but it's not. Um, it's not substance. It's Dasein's mode.
0: Yeah, what is, let's try to figure out a bit more about this Dasein. Why doesn't he just say human beings? I, I mean, why does he have to mystify it like that? Or is there something? actually essential in the notion of dasein that would be lost if we just said human beings are special in the in the world
1: yeah so i'm not 100% certain about this so this is a bit mm-hmm. going to be a bit guessing but my suspicion is that human being is more of a biological category or biological mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about um you know a person in a coma like uh in, in, in the they're still alive. Uh, maybe their brain is so damaged, they'll never even come out of it. Um, they seem to be pretty world poor and, and maybe in mm-hmm. you know, a lot of ways the plant is, but they still mm-hmm. are a member of the same species. They're still mm-hmm. a, a human being, but maybe maybe they're not a Dasein. Maybe there's no Dasein there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I think part of what's going on is that, you um, know, here's another respect in which I think um, Heidegger is still very Aristotelian. Things have mm-hmm. essence. Mm-hmm. um and so they're part of the project is to come um to discover the essence of Dasein the kind of thing mm-hmm. that we are mm-hmm. and it might be that what we are fundamentally is not human beings but we're this other thing mm-hmm. with a distinctive kind of essence we are uh, essentially in the world uh, we're mm-hmm. essentially related to other Daseins we're essentially such that there are norms governing our behavior and our use of things mm-hmm. uh, we're essentially maybe language speakers even mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. um so all these features might be essential to a kind of thing that we are designed but not essential to human beings per se. Right. And and if that's right it would be a mistake for him to to we are you know as a matter of fact we we are human beings or we at least um hang out with them mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not numerically mm-hmm. identical with them um mm-hmm. uh but that's not the that's not the central mode. Um mm-hmm. right right
0: Now <laughs> I I didn't intend to spend the whole time talking about Heidegger, and we'll have to come around to some other people, even maybe Meinong, uh, but I I do have some more questions about his lineage, right? And I think about Kant, who criticized Aristotle for, as Kant puts it, and again, I'm only paraphrasing, just coming up with a list of categories, uh, kind of until he got tired and and or you know got sidetracked right and aristotle had 10 of them whereas kant is much more insistent that he's going to give us an exhaustive deduction of the categories of the understanding and there can only be precisely this number of them and obviously i mean this is kind of we can see this as kant's um mania for uh symmetry and exhaustivity in his, uh, philosophy. Uh, then Heidegger comes along and he similarly has a kind of concern to tell us all the modes of being and to do this in an exhaustive way. It doesn't seem either just like providing a list until you get tired as Kant, Accuses Aristotle of doing. Nor does it seem particularly uh, deductive and definitive. Rather, it's this other category, and this is opening a big can of worms. That is, uh, I assume, kind of inspired by the phenomenological tradition uh, from his um, from his 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 mentor Husserl, among others, of just trying to kind of um, you know what? Look inside. Get get to the categories introspectively. Uh, how does he come up with the ones he has, and is this exhaustive? And, yeah. A, and I is this phenomenological, or am I am I right about that?
1: So <laughs> I agree with you that there's a, a that you know his his mentor Husserl and Husserl's mentor Brentano are big influences. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I you know speaking for Heidegger is kind of tricky partly because he's so pompous that at mm. times like he will overstate his own case. Yeah. But cautiously I don't think he would have said by the end of being in time for example that he's arrived at the at the um fully adequate list of all that there is. Rather this is all very provisional. So even mm. the even the starting point of looking at Dasein's mode of being first and uh trying to figure out the essence of what it is to be the kind of thing that we are um why are we doing that? Because that's like our best bet. Uh, Mm -hmm. We got to start somewhere in this um, adventure of discovering the meaning of being. And Mm -hmm. we're also going to start by where we already are. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm So we are going to use a phenomenological method to discern our own essence. um, Mm -hmm. uh, And we're going to assume that uh, when we do so, this essence is a kind of, has a kind of generality so i'm not just speaking Mm -hmm. about my own personal mode of being but Mm -hmm. there there are other creatures that are like me uh and they will share this mode too um Mm -hmm. and again that i think that is like um kind of a hallmark of the Husserlian phenomenological project that we can get general results from phenomenological investigations Uh, Mm -hmm. even though it's just him and his study we can get something that applies to you know Everything in general, if that's the best case for like formal ontological results for Husserl, mm. or everything of this kind, if we're talking about a specific kind of thing, uh, Husserl uses the term material ontology for that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. um So, what is what is Heidegger doing? He's doing something like the Husserlian material ontology of of us, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out the specific essential characteristics of the kind of thing that we are. Um, mm-hmm. But even then, like I said, my, my, my read on him when he is at his most cautious is that um, this is a provisional starting point. Uh, it's our If we had to guess, you know, where else would we start? Especially right. if we think that we are the creatures that care most about the fact that we are. Um, mm-hmm. so there's that Heideggerian phrase, we're, we're the beings for whom being is itself an issue. Right, so right, we, right. We worry about, you know, whether we will continue to be, you know, what will happen to me after I die, is that my end? Uh, what is it to be haunts us? He thinks um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we can fail to face up to this. It's a mm-hmm. this is a problem for us in a way that it's not for a rock mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or a you know an electron or whatnot. And so mm-hmm. that already tells us he thinks something deep about ourselves. We're the kind of creatures such that it's part of our essence to worry about being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if if it's built into our essence that we're supposed to worry about this thing, then it's uh, as it were it's like the object of our thought already. Right. um and that's not true of any other object that we know of it's not built into the essence of a table that it has concerns about being being right. is special right. to us in a way it's not and so it is a provisional uh investigation uh, it's this is sort of kind of our best guess of how to start but it's mm-hmm. a really good guess given this really interesting difference between us and other things that we're aware of mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: uh maybe just a, a little bit more about heidegger I, I gather that the preoccupation with uh our own being and also therefore with our own death with being towards death and 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 all that alongside the phenomenological method that's the great contribution of being in time right the 19 was it 1927 work is it um that uh, synthesizes these different strands that um that would that we today look back at and identify as existential and phenomenological, right? Whereas in Husserl, these are largely separated out, or you only get the phenomenological method. Um, But this is also, I think, something that it's hard, is it not, for uh, a contemporary Anglophone metaphysician to take on. And I gather your primary identity, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is as a 21st century Anglophone metaphysician. Has it been hard to engage with the swath and diversity of authors you've taken on to inform your work? Um...
1: I think it's been useful for me to do it. So I, mm-hmm. uh, um, there, there's always a fear, I think a reasonable fear, a justified fear that you're misreading somebody, especially mm-hmm. if you're, if you're reading uh, people with the hope that they will be useful to, to questions you antecedently care about. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. So sure. I, I do try to approach these texts with a lot of humility um, mm. when I'm doing so. Uh, I, I, you know, if I'm offering an interpretation, I'm offering it because I do think it's a good one. But yeah. I'm also aware this is not my primary specialty, and there's bound to be text that someone who's more versed in them yeah. um, will be able to point out and that I should consider. And so mm-hmm. my own my own interpretations also have to be kind of provisional. Sure. Um, of course, yeah. Uh, but they're they are motivated primarily by a concern to answer philosophical questions. So in that mm-hmm. sense, yeah, I do think my my identity primarily is a kind of contemporary metaphysician. There's mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. questions I care about. Uh, I hope they have answers. I hope we mm-hmm. can find them. Um, I think the history of philosophy is useful for thinking about these questions, partly because we get a pretty diverse um attempt pretty diverse range of attempts to answer the questions Mm -hmm. but also sometimes we get the thought that these are not the best questions to be asking and here's some alternative ones we could be caring about instead and that's sure that also is useful um and so it is it is definitely um i don't want i don't want want to like humble brag or something there's a risk of humble bragging here so i don't go ahead
0: yeah Uh, go ahead and risk it
1: (laughs) it's definitely it definitely is challenging to try to think about and incorporate all these different texts. Uh, and at the same time have an eye towards the philosophical problems. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how well I succeed in any given case. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I, like I said, since it seems like it's useful for me to do so, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad that I have the opportunity to do that. And mm-hmm. honestly, one of the best things about our job is that we get to think and read cool stuff. Uh, sure,
0: you know, so, from like, just, uh, A little bit about my own trajectory. You know, I've spent most of my career thinking about Leibniz. And when I was in graduate school and I chose Leibniz, I thought, well, this will be a nice homework exercise, a, a dissertation. It'll take longer than most of the homework I've done so far, but that's essentially what it is. But I know at the outset that this guy believed stuff that is just completely mad and unacceptable, right? The theory of monads and infinite emboîtement and all that stuff. Like I didn't take it seriously. 20 years later or more, I find, yeah, yeah. I kind of agree with him and I've had this kind of deepening of my willingness to kind of come out as a Leibnizian in a way that I never expected. And so this makes me really rethink what I've long said we're doing when we're studying figures in the history of philosophy. Like we're just, you know, looking for tools, looking for resources, um, and in now what I'm inclined to say is, well, if you spend enough time with any of these people, you're going to kind of come around to seeing how they're right. That That's not to say that they're totally right. That's not to say that, you know, Uh, you wouldn't have that experience with someone who believes the opposite of what they believe had you spent years with them. It's just to say that, you know, as Leibniz himself would say, (laughs) we all have a share of the truth in our our imperfect efforts to express it. Do you have a similar experience when you're kind of spending time with Heidegger or any other figures you've spent a lot of time with? Yeah, so
1: sort of uh i i strive when i'm thinking through these texts to as much as possible try to inhabit their point of view yeah uh and so i'm looking i'm looking for the kind of the best way to to state what their point of view is in a kind of contemporary terms that i can then mm-hmm. share with my buddies or whatnot but i still am mm-hmm. trying to make sure that it's, that is their point of view and often when you inhabit someone else's point of view and you see it how they're seeing it it's it's tempting to, to think they're right because you're now getting how things seem to yeah. them. And I, mm-hmm. I think that is useful. Um, partly because I think a lot of contemporary philosophy does operate on kind of a sort of a monocular point of view. Sure. And yeah. um, I think maybe the it's good methodology to for a while, have things seem to you a different way Yeah. yeah. and then try to try to reconcile that when you exit that point of view.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: And actually, I think maybe one of the nice things about looking at a lot of different thinkers focused on a single problem is that uh, you will have maybe a, a period of inhabiting one point of view after another, mm-hmm. but you don't get maybe stuck in it. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I find myself like finding some things about Heidegger attractive, um, mm. but lots of the I'm not sure about other stuff. So, for example, sure. um, much of what he says about Dasein actually does strike me as fairly plausible mm-hmm. uh, that, um, that we are a distinctive kind of creature that's distinctively intentional, rule-governed, et cetera. That doesn't strike me as like, a, a crazy thought at all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm less sure that I like want to go along with him about um, this ontology of present at hand and ready to hand. Mm-hmm. Stuff. Um, my own metaphysics might be more sparse than that at the end of the day. What do you think uh, about artifacts? Um yeah. Or so that's
0: yeah, yeah.
1: right. So it, it might be that at the end of the day, the metaphysics I like is going to have people are fully real and the little itty bitty physical things are fully real, but the mm-hmm. uh, artifacts are more like keeps. They're kind of like conventional constructions. They don't have mm-hmm. a kind of robust reality, Right. Yeah. which is also kind of Leibnizian. Uh,
0: yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're, and, so I, and entities by aggregation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. um, so I find myself like an,
1: definitely agreeing with some things. Um, uh, not as ethics, of course. Like that's right, a <laughs> sure. whole, yeah. whole different, yeah. a whole different horror story. But um. well,
0: it is all um, it bound up together, right? There, there. At least there have been critiques of Heidegger's philosophy that say that you really can't separate the two out, right? The um, the um, the idea of authenticity, which plays an important role in being in time. That's clearly part of by his own lights, part of his his ontological project, right, but it certainly resonates in uncomfortable ways for us, yeah. right, yeah you know? um yeah. So that's, yeah, again, I, I didn't want to talk so much about Heidegger. I want to get back to substance and a few other things. But still, I mean, the, the, the your work, and again, what I've mostly read is the, the fragmentation of reality, um, is I think methodologically very original in that it is um, much more historically informed than any other uh, contribution to, uh, contemporary metaphysics that I can think of. Um, and it does a vast survey of a number of people, not only the ones we've mentioned, but also gives Leibniz a very serious treatment and kind of, and Aquinas and, you know, spans the centuries and talks about a single enduring problem in, in a way that, um, That is again quite rare in contemporary metaphysics. But you don't think of yourself as a genealogist of the idea of being. That's not your project. You want to uh, shine light on the problem itself, and you had to go back to these characters because what your contemporaries just weren't offering enough um, enough fuel for your project. Or I mean, what is what was the nature of the motion back into history?
1: So part of it was just pure curiosity mm-hmm. and like that's like I said one of the nice things about the the job of a professor is that oftentimes we got a lot of time to read and that's that is part of our job We're, we actually sure, are doing sure. our job when we just sit down and read books which is sure. what never cease to amaze me how awesome that is that <laughs> is just this that will never I'll never stop being amazed by that um,
0: I though there are some are some, there are some uh, senators in uh uh, certain states um, who have apparently wandered through the halls of universities and reported back that they did not like what they saw because faculty members were just sitting around reading and therefore we need to withdraw the funding. So I think this is, yes, for now, this is still our job, but it's... um, it's 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 precarious i think i i definitely
1: agree that in the united states it's certainly <laughs> precarious. i mean one of the nice things about being in notre dame though is I, yeah. don't think, I don't think that my my specific personal job is precarious in that way right, which is right yeah for the yeah. reason
0: to feel just incredibly fortunate and lucky yeah 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 if you have that yeah we're both very fortunate in that regard yeah, you. yeah.
1: Uh, so anyway to go back to your um question part of it was just you know, pure curiosity um mm-hmm. Part of it also was though the thought that um, I don't want to just rest on my own intuitions about about the case at hand or about what arguments seem plausible to me. I want to mm-hmm. kind of way to calibrate them. Not just a gut check, but like check other people's guts. And mm-hmm. you know, we're not a very insular crowd, believe it or not. Like so there's a lot of disagreement and you get a lot of pushback from, you know, my peers, but I also think it's nice to have in a sense pushback from people that radically disagree with the presuppositions of mm-hmm. me and my peers and that's mm-hmm. where history of philosophy i think can play a really useful role. Yeah. Kind of, not just history of philosophy though but you know cross cultural philosophy i think mm-hmm. experimental sure. philosophy has sure. a role to play or too. Um so the methodology is is looking for calibrations of my of how things seem to me by figuring out how things seem to other people. Um, yeah, right, 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 right. So it, yeah, it is it is important then to try to get um as wide of a sweep of mm-hmm. history as you can and of mm-hmm. course to go back to the earlier question about how daunting that is it is daunting and like mm-hmm. i i do worry that i'm not doing a good job of it and with any particular case you know any particular figure or school yeah. uh, of thought or whatnot there's always the risk of misreading the text to fit it into yeah. your narrative. Um, yeah
0: yeah, right. Well, but that's why I, I think, you know, um, it's a perfectly de- legitimate thing to say, I'm going to sculpt a narrative out of the resources I'm drawing from the past. That's what I'm doing. And of course, all historical uh, historical narrative is sculpting. You know, you're never getting the thing itself and nothing else. Um, and it's okay to just acknowledge that right um and yeah i think your book is a good example of that let's let's go back to the the hard metaphysical questions for just a, a few more minutes <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to dwell on them for too long but so when i'm teaching aristotle on substance for example um i tend to say that we don't believe it, that any of this stuff is true today. Why don't we believe that it's true today? Well, because if you think of substance as that in which properties inhere, uh, but which is not itself in turn a property of anything else, um, it is for that very reason kind of indescribable and beyond, um, Beyond any characterization, because if you start to characterize it, then you're you're telling us its properties. And contemporary science, or science for the past several centuries, has wanted such a thing as a horse uh, to be nothing but. the sum total of its properties, even if you have to get down to the genome and uh, and sequences of proteins and things like that. In the end, once you get down to the last sequences of proteins, there's nothing left over to account for their presence, right? Uh, that's all you've got. That's all that the horse is. And so for that reason, uh, I think my students, most of whom are coming from the natural sciences, are kind of primed to be suspicious of this talk of substance versus versus properties, substance versus, uh, versus accident. Um, and it really just doesn't have a place in our contemporary world. Or if it does, you have to be prepared, or if you want to say it does, you have to be prepared to put yourself way out there against the prevailing sensibility of science and our broader secular society, right? Uh, Is there a way that I'm missing to make sense of it and to make it more meaningful um, for for people, no matter what their deeper, say, religious commitments are?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm... I guess I'm not sure you're right about... The, the horse just to begin with let's just mm. take the horse. yeah i could so, be wrong yeah uh we got we got the horse and maybe the most um at the most fundamental physical level it's a collection of particles held by mm-hmm. various forces or maybe it's perturbation of some field across space-time i don't really know what the you know what the right answer is going to be for that but
0: mm.
1: let's suppose it is something. You know that's we're inclined to something like that. That's mm-hmm. even deeper mm-hmm. than genomes. We've got particles mm-hmm. or you know sure, particles yeah. live the Um it seems like there's questions we want to ask, like uh, why is it this part of this collection of particles that's the horse as opposed to these adjacent ones? Why does mm-hmm. why is it this sequence of particles that's the horse as opposed to some nearby ones? Um, mm-hmm. and it seems like you know, we just giving the list of the particles is not going to be enough. We want to have right. an explanation of the kind of unity that they have. So this, mm-hmm. this is one, this is a thing. Um, sure. And I think that is still part of our conception of the world that there are, there are, there are unities or things in the world that horse is one of them. Right. We are, um, you know, I, you know, I am a thing, a single thing, even if I'm made out of a bunch of other things, And um, that seems something like you could deny with a philosophical argument, sure. But if we're just talking about what the kind of gut level person on the street thinks, I think they still think that. Right. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a kind of a folk, cat, notion of being that is pretty resilient, I suppose. Um, so e- yeah. So if if that notion is right uh, um, and
1: science has not done away with it, it doesn't seem to me is the scientists themselves probably think of themselves as one thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: People studying, people studying, you know, kinds of trees tend to think of trees as a thing. Mm-hmm. Um. um then even if we're not going to call you know uh, yourself a substance, if we're not going to use the old world word word um, mm. anymore, we're not going to use that that word anymore. Um, we still have this question: like, what what is it that's the, the thing that unifies it? Like, why mm-hmm. is it why is it a, a single thing made out of a bunch of stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that seems to me that even if the notion of substance has been dispensed with, is is like a descendant of that notion. And that's, right, that's right, right. Around.
0: Yeah, 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 sure. I often think when I listen to people in the the philosophy of biology, talking about the problem of individuality, what is a biological individual, um, that what they're doing effectively is uh, kind of importing talk of the metaphysics of substance without really knowing that that's what they're doing and if you try to tell them about it they'll say oh no that's that's just that's old stuff that's the way, that's the way people used to talk right but i think that the fact that they're concerned you know about siphonophores or those groves of trees that are all genetically identical connected at the roots and so on the fact that they're concerned about um, individuating uh, the the real trees or the real organism mm-hmm. in the case of siphonophores suggests that yeah they share this fault notion there has to be a real individual there and we need to come up with a way to tell us what it is and biology alone doesn't seem to be doing the job right mm-hmm. would you agree with that does that make sense yeah that's i agree with that um mm-hmm.
1: now i do i do think with like I said, someone can come up with with cool arguments that this is a mistaken way of thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess to plug my own book, I guess for a second, yeah. uh, uh, that's one of the things I'm worried about. In in one of the chapters of the book, when I'm thinking about people, so right, uh, you know, we at least I personally, and my 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 wife and kids and friends, I guess I don't know how mm. wide to make this claim, <laughs> but some people I know uh, think of ourselves as single things. Uh, yeah. And as real things, as things that are not just beans by aggregation, heaps of uh, stuff, but as real things. Um mm-hmm. so I, you know, I um um that thought might be wrong. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one of the things I want to do is try to figure out what hangs on that thought, not just Mm -hmm. metaphysically, but also evaluatively or normatively. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, what, what happens if that thought is mistaken in terms of our conception of ourselves um, and our duties to ourselves and our duties to others. So this is, Mm -hmm. um, there is some connections with, you know, relatively recent interest in in Buddhist metaphysics here as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the 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 doctrine of of no self and things like that right where you can kind of do away with the self but then you have to ask what ethical commitments follow now that now that the self is gone right
1: right Mm. exactly so Mm -hmm. this is the um in terms of you know big big picture questions have been animating my thinking um Mm.
0: Oh yeah
1: yeah not just not just what is being but how are being and value connected mm-hmm, sure and, mm-hmm. um uh you know one of the views that I find very fascinating uh, is this the inconv- inconv- the convertibility of being and goodness so that, right yeah mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. uh and it might be that um the the picture that I end up with is one which being is a kind of goodness it's a kind mm-hmm. of metaphysical value um, right
0: right 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean it's significant, yeah, that you start with your wife and kids, right? When you when you when you want to make a list of the entities or purported entities that you are most inclined to think of as real individual things, right? Um you don't start with some random stranger, let alone a fish or a siphonophore, right? right. Like whether those turn out to be uh uh, real beings is far less salient because you don't really love them or not in the same way. Right. Is that, is that the connection between being and goodness that you're, that you're moving towards? Is that part yeah, of that, it?
1: That might be one of the connections. So, um, so I have this, um, so one of the connections that, I, that I've been exploring is whether or not things that are most real are the sort of things that we should be thinking more about. Mm-hmm. So whether the most real is the most fit objects for our thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you might think that it's, it's one thing to give a theory of how things are and that theory be true, but it's another thing to have a, give a theory of how things are that like cuts at the joints. Yeah. You know, describes the thing and in its intrinsic structure that gets how it is.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's better for us to do that uh, mm-hmm. if we can. It's uh we are cognitively better off by mm. having theories that are not just true but are metaphysically perspicuous in this mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. A, so a, a natural way of taking that thought if you already have the kind of weird metaphysical leanings that I have is that what metaphysical perspicuity is is being more real. Mm-hmm, we want to get mm-hmm. we want to get to the deepest level of reality, um, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that we should be orienting our our thoughts towards. And if mm-hmm, you have that mm-hmm. thought, then it is a little disturbing if you and I don't end up being at that deeper level. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So if you uh, if you think in terms of you know what God has to do to make the world, uh, does mm-hmm. God just make the physical particles and stop, or mm-hmm. does God have to do something else to make to make people? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And if um, the things that are mere beings by aggregation are not like fit objects for our contemplation, then they wouldn't be fit objects for a God's contemplation either.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. That's
1: right, that's right. that's something I think very disturbing, uh, at least for me, that uh, my kids might not even be fit objects for a God's contemplation. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. I don't think even have to. Yeah. I don't think you even have to believe in a God to think that's mm-hmm. the case. So I'm not yeah, particularly uh-huh. particularly religious, but that um, that that that, that Thought process. I does. I find it very discombobulating to think that my kids yeah. might be just aggregates. You know, just these heaps. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, pretty remarkable heaps, if that's what they are, right? They're very and heaps, I guess, <laughs> um, But you know, no. But I mean, like, I mean that though. So, sort of, uh, you could come to that conclusion, but still. Be very impressed with this particular subset of all heaps, right? Because it's so intricate. And what comes out of this, this uh kind of coming together of these particles is so incredible that it's indeed worthy of attention, right? Um, And, yeah, I mean, I think about that with, yeah, the idea of, say, God just seeing right through a wheelbarrow or whatever, because, (laughs) you know, who really cares in metaphysical rigor? Um, God is sharp enough to see that wheelbarrows and and so on don't really matter. But then, you know, well, then what is God paying attention to? That is a very interesting way to phrase the question. Yeah. I never really thought about it that way, even though Leibniz certainly pushes one to. Yeah,
1: so this is it is a very Leibnizian thought. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I do. I I do
1: love Leibniz. So that's (laughs) surprising. Yeah,
0: Yeah, but, you know, I I guess also in philosophy of like, you know, what we're learning now about, say, the the human gut microbiome Mm -hmm. and so on that you know we're not just a conjuries of parts but we're also a massive conspiracy of many many different species and if any of them were to retreat um from this um cooperation from the symbiosis then we wouldn't last long either right. right um and that is such a remarkable thing to learn about ourselves that it does push a person towards um uh uh i think yeah a kind of simultaneous wonder and anxiety right at yeah. least that's that's my response to it it's neither like no that can't be true nor you know that is true and therefore We we don't exist. Uh, It's more just hmm, this is this is this is curious. (laughs) It it can
1: push you one of two ways. You think it turns out I'm much more dependent on things inside me than I thought I was. and So that's not maybe a metaphysical qualm, but more just things can go wrong in a way that would be bad for me it's yeah it's, it's worth I'm more
0: fragile than I thought right yeah um, that's another another worry that can come out of it you
1: know but the metaphysical worry is I'm really in just a heap of different cells and organisms and whatnot that are just yeah. like you said not even of the same species um, right, so you, right and that that's the
0: metaphysical disquiet-hmm um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah 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 so tell me a little bit more about what you're working on these days the connection between being and value um is that your your new long-term project or is this something more emerging out of because this is something that you do address in the 2017 book as well
1: yeah so it's it's a continuation of that that aspect of the project um so one of the things I've been trying to figure out um so the, the you know the biggest question is um, how do metaphysical what implications do metaphysical views have uh for normative views um, mm-hmm. in, in many, that's the you know the, the really big question of how these two get connected up to one another but within that big question I've been looking at more specific questions um so what are the implications of us not being fully real um how should we Mm -hmm. feel about that how should we feel about other things uh besides ourselves so Mm um we've been talking about the particles but there's another view that's kind of the diametric opposite but equally disturbing view and that's a kind of monism Um, Right. yeah yeah so there's there's the one the universe maybe as a whole and that's Mm -hmm. the thing that's metaphysically bedrock and what Mm -hmm. we are is you know we're modes of it or we're perturbations Mm -hmm. of it or something like that we're Mm -hmm. like the oscillations of a wave on a string Mm -hmm. and so in that view um you know that view i think is just as disturbing in terms of our own reality as the view that we're aggregates of particles Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's also a view that has led some people to have um for want of a better phrase religious feelings towards Mm -hmm. the one Um, sure sure And so one of my current projects is trying to figure out, um, you know, what what sort of spiritual or religious uh, attitudes or emotions are appropriate, given Mm -hmm. that kind of monism. So Mm -hmm, the the only truly real thing is the one we are less than fully real or modes of it or something like that. Mm -hmm, You know, how should should we feel about that? And specifically, what sort of spiritual feelings, if any, should we have? Right, Um, right, right. right. So that's that's a. it's a, you know, it's a that question I'm asking on historically, um, mm-hmm. but I'm also looking at historical figures again too to think about that question.
0: Um, mm-hmm. 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 Um, spinoza obviously um
1: spinoza british you know, a lot of the british idealists as sure, well Sure, yeah
0: yeah yeah um, i guess the ultimate monist parmenides doesn't really give us much to go on does you he don't got a lot of text <laughs> no but even you know his disciple zeno just basically makes fun of you if you think you can walk across a stadium or that there's a difference between uh red and green or whatever and, you know Part of the problem is that, that that anyone who tries to defend such a radical view of monism is just going to be confronted by smart Alex who get up and walk across the stadium, right? <laughs> yeah, of course I can walk across the stadium. So, you know, I think extreme monism uh, is uh, uh, something uh, that just uh, pushes against the limits of our own uh, just immediate experience, but a uh, Spinozist style or a Brad, or, you know, yeah, no, well, Spinozism is something more um, kind of indeed intimately connected to other ideas about cosmic unity that do seem to have spiritual and moral implications, mm-hmm. right? So that's a super interesting project. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if we di- agree or disagree about what being is. I, I we're supposed to come to a come to a, a an agreement at the end of each episode, or come to a, a determination at the end of each episode, whether it's agreement, disagreement, or aporia. <laughs> I kind of feel like this is aporia because I still don't know what being is.
1: If if I'm perfectly honest, I think we rarely know the answers to philosophical yeah, questions. Yeah, anyway, sure. So. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah yeah i think it's we got to just approach this stuff with a lot of humility and yeah
0: yeah that's what i mean that's one of the themes that i keep coming back to on this podcast that no actually when you're talking about philosophy aporia is good that's the, that's what you want if if you're only getting agreement uh that's that sooner a sign of a problem right even though like i said to you earlier i i i often find i end up agreeing um with whoever i'm talking to as long as i'm talking to them but see it's it's nice to come to Aparia with you together right because you have this kind of approach that values humility and you know doesn't doesn't make affirmations or doesn't issue final statements easily right
1: yeah i think uh i think it's it's the history of philosophy should convince us that this stuff is really hard. These questions yeah. are really hard, sure. And uh, but it shouldn't make us think they're unimportant. And so yeah. when you have a, a hard question, that's also a very important question to add, to answer.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know your own limits. You humility is what's called for. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah
0: that, yeah. that
1: doesn't mean you give up. It just means you you, you try your best and hope for the best, but don't. Yeah don't be a jerk about it i guess that's right
0: <laughs> right 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 well don't be a dogmatist be yeah um be be flexible and and um and
1: there's always there's always more to read and there's always more people who've thought about this that you haven't talked to and you'll be yeah. dead at some point and they'll keep working on these questions because they're not going to go away and so
0: right 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 well i think yeah in terms of in terms of approach in terms of sensibility i think we agree as to the question of what the hell being is anyway i think (laughs) i think it's too premature i think we're gonna have to go with that for real but anyhow listen chris it's been really fun to talk to you and to to finally meet you as well so thanks for coming thank
1: you so much for for doing this with me